You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, again, moms, happy Mother's Day. And your impact on all of our lives is significant. In fact, you leave a legacy as does any parent. And so we just, we want to celebrate that here this morning. So we want to honor you, Mom. So it's a little something we want to show you here. Dear Mommy, you're the greatest. You're so pretty and smart, and you cook really good, too. I love it when you cuddle with me, read me stories, and kiss me goodnight. I like that a lot. Jesus gave me the best Mommy in the world. So much. And I didn't realize how much I'd miss you. Thanks for the money. You'd be proud. I got a great deal on a new outfit. I can shop like you, but I definitely can't cook like you. Anyway, I really miss you, Mom. I know raising me hasn't always been easy, and I don't always say it, but I'm so thankful thankful for you, Mom. I don't know how I'd make it through without you. Just having you to call and listen when I need to vent helps me more than you know. Was life this complicated when I was growing up? I know you had your own struggles, but you always seem to have a handle on things. That's why I need your grounding, and I thank God for you, Mom. You've shown me so much. I'm in awe of you. you. Not a day goes by that I am not grateful for you and for all that you've taught me. Do you realize what a wonderful legacy you have? I see so much of you in the kids and in their kids. And now a whole new generation is being built on the foundation of your incredible love. Lord, we do thank you for our mothers and for the legacy that they, that they can leave for us. And, and Lord, we're so grateful that uh, some of the goodness that you give to us comes through our parents, comes through our mothers. And we thank you for each one of them. But Lord, I also know as with any time like this, sometimes Mother's Day is, is difficult or is painful or has difficult memories. God, I pray as the God of all comfort that you would be with each one here through that as well. And Lord, again, we thank you that we can gather as your people and in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was looking some weeks ago at this Sunday and just beginning to think about it and to think about Daniel 9, I thought, who in the world dreamed up preaching a Daniel 9 passage on Mother's Day? And then I realized it was me and the preaching team. I, I own that. But as we dive into Daniel chapter 9 today, there is this idea of legacy that we're going to be looking at that really is front and center of how Daniel prays and what he prays about. Any parent leaves a legacy. Some legacies are are good and godly and impactful and loving, and some legacies are painful and difficult and impactful. 
and long-lasting. And this morning, we really see a legacy, actually, of, of brokenness that, that's being confronted and faced and dealt with. Because for those of you who haven't been with us, or, or just to reset some history here, to remind you, in this point in history, God's people are in exile in Babylon. And this has played out exactly the way God said it would play out. If you'll remember back with me, God delivers his people, he redeems them out of Egypt, brings them to the base of Mount Sinai, and because he is a loving, commitment-keeping, promise-making God, he enters into a covenant with them and says, if you live like this, if you obey me, if you trust me, if you're faithful to me, I will bless you. And these are the innumerable ways that I will bless you. And no one wants to bless you more than I do. However, if you disobey me, if you do evil, if you don't trust me, if you betray me, then I am going to punish you. And this is what's going to happen. And for 400 years, God's people chose the other option. Disobeying God, distrusting God, committing incredible acts of evil and walking away from their relationship with him and over and over again betraying his love and his faithfulness to them. So God does exactly what he said he would do and he punishes them. And the Babylonians, the world's first superpower, sweep into power, sweep through the region, and conquer and then exile the people back to their country. So in the frame of reference of a Jew living during that time, they lose their land, they lose their home, they lose their culture, they lose their identity, they lose their God. And yet God actually not only preserves all those things, but ultimately will restore them because he's a God who always keeps his promises. But at this point in history, God's people have been in exile now for over 50 years. And this brings us to Daniel chapter 9. And there are some really important details that set the stage and the tone for what we're going to read in these verses, and they're, they're captured in the first couple verses. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. This is very, very important details for us to begin to unpack this chapter. Number one, there is a principle here that Daniel lives out before us that is so fundamental, that is so important. Where does he go for perspective to God's word? Evidently, he had access to a scroll of the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And in reading that scroll, he understood the timeline of what was going on here and the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver his people from exile. And I'll show you probably the very passage he was referring to, at least one of them. In Jeremiah 25, it says, But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So now it's been 50 years. And as we read in that first verse, there's been another power change. 
The Babylonian kingdom no longer exists. The Medes and the Persians come in, they assimilate and take over the kingdom. So now the first huge domino has fallen according to this prophecy. Babylon is going to be overthrown. It's happened. 50 of the 70 years are now done. So you would think reasonably that now Daniel is going to celebrate. The end is in sight. In just another 20 years or so, he's going to hopefully, God willing, with his walker or with his wheelchair, be able to go back to the promised land and now see it again for himself. There's hope because God is at work and God always keeps his promises. And so it's a time to celebrate. The end is in sight. And so we read in this next passage here, what Daniel does and how he responds. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes, the clothes of mourning and grief. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. There's not celebration going on here. This is a prayer of confession that we're about to unpack together. And this reasonably raises all sorts of questions in our minds. Shouldn't Daniel be celebrating that the exile is almost over? Why in the world is he confessing instead? And notice how he'll talk to God. He will use different names for God. He will refer to God as Yahweh, although it doesn't translate that way in our English. It just says Lord, but he'll call God by the personal sovereign name of God, Yahweh, because that's the name of God that is indicative of his covenant-making character, his promise-keeping character. He'll call God Adonai, the the God who is merciful and gracious and and honors his his covenants. And notice how he identifies with his people. Look at the language of this. It is profoundly significant for us and really unexpected. So this is what he prays. Lord, the great and awesome God, which we just sang about, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We? We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. 
For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned and we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Wow. Boy, there's, there's just a lot of questions with this prayer. Why in the world does Daniel identify over and over again with his ancestors by saying, we, 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 us, 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 He wasn't alive when that stuff was going on. The exile happened on his watch. We know that he was like a teenager when the Babylonians swept in and everyone got carried off to exile, including him. He wasn't responsible for for what was going on. was, Was Daniel a good guy? Was he faithful? Was he upright? Yes. In fact, it's interesting when you read some children's books of the Old Testament in particular and the New Testament, particularly the Old, it's really interesting how sometimes those biblical stories kind of get sanitized and whitewashed because as you look at the men and women of Scripture, godly men and women of Scripture, Scripture, so thankful, tells life the way it really is. And, and everybody is, is broken in some way, shape, or form. Think of Abraham and Sarah, godly, amazing people, profoundly broken. Isaac and Rebecca. You begin thinking through Scripture, men and women alike, and there's this incredible inconsistency in how they live their lives and incredible brokenness. And it's not to say that Daniel wasn't broken. He was, but there's nothing sanitized or whitewashed about the book of Daniel. This was a godly, faithful man who was an incredible example of an upright life, and yet here's this very man confessing and identifying with the brokenness of his, of his people. And notice how he appeals to him. There's covenant language all throughout this passage. It draws on prayers from other parts of the Old Testament. It goes back and reaches back to Exodus 6, which we'll do ourselves here in just a minute. But look at how he petitions God and, and asks God to move. God, this is for your sake. Your sake. We bear your name. He's reminding God over and over again, God, you said, God, you promised, God, you committed, God, for your sake. Is it okay to talk to God that way? Evidently so. 
And so he's reminding God, this is what you said, this is what you do. But it's what he appeals to that I think unlocks this passage for us and really this prayer and helps us understand what's going on and why. It's sprinkled all throughout this prayer. He appeals to God's righteousness. Lord, you are righteous. For the Lord our God is righteous. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because you are because of your great mercy. So if righteousness, if understanding that, oh, not yet, if understanding that <laughs> is gonna help us unlock this passage, let the cat out of the bag there a little bit. What is righteousness? How do you define it? That's a good person, right? That's a moral person. That's a nice person. That's a kind person. But is that how Scripture defines righteousness? Is that what it really means? Do we even use this word in our language today? Your neighbor comes over and weeds your yard for you. Do you say, what a righteous man, right? You probably say, what a weird man. What are you doing in my lawn? I can weed my own. No. But we don't use that in our language, right? When's the last time you called someone righteous? And now, this is what comes to mind for me. Do you remember Finding Nemo? Who is that on the screen for the benefit of our friends podcasting this in the future? Crush, right? Crush, the, the, the ancient, really cool sea turtle, right? And what did Crush do? He rode the waves. And what did he do as he rode the waves? Righteous! Righteous! Yeah! That's how righteous gets used somewhat in our culture, like maybe in the 80s and 90s. But no one really talks like that anymore, and that certainly isn't all that righteousness is, is a really cool wave that you ride. It's more than that, obviously. So, so what is righteousness? Well, you intuitively understand what righteousness isn't. You know what it's not. Because... What comes to mind when you hear that someone is self-righteous? Is that a good description or a bad description of someone? What is a self-righteous person like? Smug, condemning, prideful, arrogant. So righteousness is not something that you do by yourself. You do not make yourself Righteous. In fact, righteousness is measured, is quantified, is defined by your relationship to others. Relationships are what defines righteousness. At the heart of righteousness is this idea of doing right by someone else. Now, it's not good English, but sometimes we talk like that, right? They, they did right by me. And we kind of, again, intuitively understand what that means. God is righteous. Always. Because of how he treats others. All his relationships and how he interacts are always righteous. Yes, even including exiling his people. That was an act of righteousness. Righteousness, biblically, is right relationship with God, right relationship with others, right relationship with self, 
right relationship with land. That is the way everything was in the beginning until Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin and sin and death and destruction entered the world and everything became distorted and broken. But the way God always intended things to be was to reflect his character, righteous, right relationships. Which now brings us back to Exodus 34, which is referenced in this very prayer. Moses says, God, I want to see you. And so God reveals himself to Moses and he describes himself. You want to know what God's like? How about we ask God and let him tell us. This is what God is like. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Yeah, that works for me. Slow to anger? Absolutely. 400 years? I'd say that's slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness? Sure. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin? Yes. He is all those things. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Oh. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That's a little troubling. What does that mean? Does it mean that the children will bear the consequences of their parents' sin? Does it mean that children will pay, will experience their parents' punishment for their parents' sins? Does it mean that children are going to repeat, potentially, their parents' sin? And I think the answer, biblically, reasonably, is yes. I think it means all those realities, which begins to unlock for us and help us understand why Daniel approaches and prays to God in the way that he does. He doesn't have an overactive conscience. He's not going over the top in what he's saying and confessing. He's not over-identifying with his people or crossing some kind of boundary. He understands the righteousness of God. God is righteous because he is just. He punishes sin and evil and brokenness. For 400 years, he gave his people chance after chance after chance to turn back to him, and they refused to do so. And if you will go back and read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you see what the people were doing, this was more than just, you know, telling a little white lie. They were living evil, despicable, selfish horrible lives and God eventually says enough and he judges that but God is also righteous because he's loving he's compassionate he's gracious we've seen that in this very book in the heart of exile is God allowing his people to be obliterated no he's still preserving them he's elevated some of them like Daniel to positions of leadership He saves the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. He saves Daniel's life in the lion's den. God's love and faithfulness is all over the book of Daniel, just like his judgment is. Because the way God deals with the brokenness of this world is he makes covenants, and then he keeps them. And he does what he says he will will do. And ironically, the very covenant that lands God's people in exile is the very covenant that's going to get them out of it. God 
is righteous. And so is Daniel. By how he responds to God. Because the closer you get to God, the more you realize you really do need him. The more you begin to see how broken you really are without him. And the more you begin to see his forgiveness, his grace, his patience, his love. And that's what we see here in Daniel. Why does Daniel say we, 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 our, 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 all throughout this? Because he understands God's righteousness and that God is, is being righteous in how he has dealt with his people and will be righteous in how he deals with his people. And so Daniel does something that's so fundamentally important that we have to remember. And I forget it in my own life. It's like I have spiritual amnesia. It's like, well, no, duh, of course. But if you want to know God, you've got to know his word, which means you've got to be in his word, which means you've got to be filtering your circumstances and your life and your relationships through the reality and truth of God's word. Because there are too many of us who live our lives and filter our lives through our circumstances or through what our culture tells us, rather than going to the word of God for hope and perspective. And this is so illustrated to me recently in in really two positive examples of two couples who who are marrying one another. I I did one ceremony for this one couple just a couple weeks ago, and another ceremony is coming this next month. And I love weddings. It's one of my most favorite things I get to do as a pastor. But these couples are very similar and very different. The first couple I married, 20-somethings, have dated for five years, all through high school, all through college, very similar to what Jamie and I did, really. Getting married is 20-somethings. And so sweet and so committed to one another and, and so exciting to see them commit their lives and begin their new life together with this other couple that's coming, who were a couple who have both been married before, one of them lost their spouse, the others, you know, there's lots of, lots of story there, but they're getting remarried late in life, lots and lots of life experience, lots of wisdom, very spiritually deep, love the Lord, love, and this younger couple loves the Lord too, but just two very different situations. This other couple that I'm marrying next month, this older couple, don't need a whole lot of premarital. They're pretty wise, they've got a lot of tools, they're they're definitely on the right path. But you know what the common denominator is between these two couples, the 20-somethings, and this other couple getting married later in life? They both have maintained their sexual purity with one another. This 20-something couple never had sex with anyone and have saved having sex with one another till after they're married. This other couple, yes, they had sex because they were married before, but they are saving themselves for one another. Do you know what gospel they are declaring by their actions? The real gospel. The gospel that God, as our groom, covenants himself, commits himself to protect, serve, love, ultimately sacrifice himself for his bride and to keep his promise to her. He is not the groom who shacks up with his girlfriend, the church, to give things a try, to see if it will work out because he's too selfish to commit himself to her or too insecure, one of the two. 
And so he will use her for his own ends as she does with him, not ever fully committing. So they just kind of live together. But is there a covenant or commitment there? No. Do you see where this is going? How you live your life communicates the gospel. How you live your life reflects or distorts the righteousness of God. And God wants us to live the gospel the way he lives it towards us. Because you see, you can live out the righteousness of God. But you just said, Pastor Jay, I can't do it on my own. You're absolutely right. You can't. God has to enable you to do it by giving you his righteousness. And he does. This is one of my most favorite verses in the Bible. This is talking about Jesus. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through a cross, Jesus takes all of our brokenness on himself, dies, and then rises to new life, and by doing so, gives us the power to have right relationship with God, right relationship with others, right relationship with self, right relationship with land, right relationship the way God always intended it for us if you'll receive it and respond to it and live it. You can be a righteous person. Not self-righteous. Well, you can. You can be self-righteous. But true righteousness comes through the empowerment of God being in your life. And then you do right by others. Because God empowers you to live the very life that you were always created to have. And there was something that clicked for me personally in my own relationship with the Lord and understanding what it means to be righteous um, out of a book that a number of us have read or did read, when we started our men's discipleship groups years ago, and by the way, you can still get into these, guys. All you have to do is ask. But we met and began going through, in small groups, this book called The Cure. Also, used to be called True Face. They retitled it, but it's basically the same. But there's an illustration in there that's told of this reality of how religion and then how God deals with righteousness. And it's this analogy, and this is oversimplified, but imagine this cesspool of brokenness and sin and yuck, and it goes as far as you can see, it's as wide as you can see, and it's really wide. There's no way you can swim across it, no way you can get across it, and God is on the other side. And what empty religion will tell you is that, well, you know, try and go around the lake or do this or don't do that or follow this moral code or discover the God within or just pretend it's not really reality. You know, all the ways that empty religion tries to persuade us that we can cross the lake and it doesn't work. In the cesspool you go. In the cesspool I go. And we don't ever quite get to God. Boy, bummer to be me, bummer to be you. Except that's not the gospel. God in his righteousness goes into the lake forest, takes on our sin, dives into the cesspool, dies, gives his life, comes back to life, and now he's standing next to us. And by the way, you are still contributing to that lake with your brokenness, with your sin, and says, do you really want to keep living like that? When you could have living water, you want to drink out of the cesspool? You want to drink out of the mud puddle? 
You want to be self-righteous? When you can have mine. When you can have what I created you to be. Right relationship with me and others. It's yours to have, but you, but you have to respond. And so we see in this example of Daniel, a man who is living in reality, who realizes that there is a brokenness in his life apart from God, but that righteousness from God can be his to have if he will trust, if he will believe, if he will obey, if he will receive. You can be a righteous person. You can live a righteous life, a life that is joyful and fulfilling and satisfying and hopeful and meaningful and impactful and that leaves a legacy for years and generations to come. But it starts with with right relationship with God. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.